Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And you're looking at live images right now of the Fulton County, Georgia jail, where in just a few hours, former President Donald Trump will be placed under arrest. Welcome to the lead and CNN special coverage of this historic event. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, D.C. Trump is now making his way down to Georgia. Just a few minutes ago, we saw his motorcade leave his New Jersey golf resort and head to the Newark airport. The former president announcing his plans on his social media posting, quote, arrest time at 7.30 p.m. Before Trump's surrender this evening, his former chief of staff at the White House, Mark Meadows, turned himself in on charges, including racketeering. His mugshot was just released. A number of other co-defendants have turned themselves in today. But as of now, uh, there remain eight individuals, including Donald Trump, who have yet to surrender. They have until noon tomorrow to do so. Let's go straight to my colleague, Caitlin Collins. Uh, who's going to co-anchor the show from outside the Fulton County Jail this hour. Caitlin, you have some uh, new insight into how Donald Trump and his team are, are preparing for his arrest. Yeah, Jake, it is supposed to happen just a matter of hours from now uh, when Trump is going to head here. He is hyping the time on his own social media account saying it is going to happen around 7.30 p.m. That is what we had been preparing for. Jake, one thing, though, uh, that still still seems to be not clear to at least Trump's team of what's going to happen once he is here and goes into the Fulton County Jail behind me is that idea of whether or not he is going to have a mugshot. Now, the sheriff here has insisted all along every single day that Trump is going to be treated like every other defendant has, like every other defendant is, which, of course, includes processing, fingerprinting, and having that mugshot taken. We have seen it for everyone else who has turned themselves in, including just Mark Meadows a few hours ago. But I was told that as of this morning, there were still two people who were involved in those discussions, aware of those discussions, who said it was not yet clear whether or not there is going to be a Donald Trump mugshot. They had been having these ongoing conversations about that. Now, whether or not that is what happens, I mean, it seems like if they are sticking with what the sheriff has been saying, which is that he's going to be treated like everyone else, that that will be the case when he arrives here in just a matter of hours. But that's just one detail that remains to be sorted out as he is preparing to surrender himself here, Jake. And this afternoon, uh, the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis proposed starting Trump's trial and the trial of his 18 co-defendants really soon on October 23rd. Uh, Trump's team, of course, coming out against that proposal. What what are their arguments as to why October 23rd uh, is not appropriate? Yeah, just basically two months ago is what they wanted to, what she had proposed. And that came as a result of hearing from another co-defendant arguing for a speedy trial. It seemed to be, you know, the district attorney kind of calling that other co-defendant's bluff here. But Trump's team has weighed in saying they oppose that date. That is no surprise, Jake. They think that is way too soon. They believe that this is something that should happen much further in the future if it even happens before uh, the presidential election. Obviously, that's something they've been arguing in other cases. 
but certainly here, given the complexity of this case, that's not just Trump, it's 18 co-defendants and the uh, RICO charges, these racketeering charges that he is facing, they are arguing um, that that should not happen. Of course, what it's ultimately up to is ju the judge here, Scott McAfee, who is a, a relatively young judge in this case and what he decides about when that hearing and then when that trial is actually going to take place. And Caitlin, big news this morning when we learned uh, Trump is ditching one his uh, his criminal defense attorney in Fulton County and he hired a different one. Do we, do we know why he decided to switch lawyers, uh, defense attorneys ahead of his surrender later today? It's not. Yeah, it's not totally surprising to people, Jake, who have been talking to Trump over the last several weeks. He was unhappy with his legal team here in Georgia because he has kind of had this idea, as he has with other indictments, that they should be able to prevent the indictments from happening at all, Jake. And obviously that has not been something that they have been able to do, at least with the other three uh, situations. But here, the legal team that had been handling this investigation that's been going on for two and a half years, uh, Drew Finley and Jennifer Little and a third attorney, uh, Trump was unhappy that essentially they were able to do that. That is part of what led to the fact that he had been asking around for other attorneys. He is now settled on a top criminal defense attorney from the Atlanta area to go with him. Uh, of course, how they handle this, what this looks like, if they're the ones who ultimately take it to trial remains to be seen, but also a notable development. And something we've seen happen with other indictments where he has decided to shake up the legal team, including with his January 6th legal team on that federal indictment. They brought in John Laro there uh, around that indictment. So that is going to be the case going forward, and that will be the new attorney appearing with Trump here in Atlanta. All right, uh, Caitlin. Uh and Jake Seedens, Paul Reed is here with yeah. me. Yeah, we've been talking about Mark Meadows and, of course, the fact that he is someone who we just saw Paula surrender himself a few hours ago. He was trying to not turn himself at all before that noon deadline tomorrow, but the judge ruled in and decided that he did have to. That's exactly right. He was trying not to have to surrender. He asked a federal judge to delay the deadline to surrender, which is tomorrow at noon, until after his federal case is resolved. Because right now, Caitlin, he's asking a federal court to remove the Fulton County case to the federal jurisdiction where he believes he will successfully get it dismissed. But the judge denied that request. So earlier today, his lawyers arranged bond. He has a $100,000 bond. He'll have to post a portion of that in cash. And he has a lot of the same restrictions that other defendants in this case have. He can't talk about the case with other defendants or other witnesses except through lawyers. But on Monday, he's going to have a hearing in that federal case in that effort to try to get his Fulton County prosecution moved to a federal jurisdiction. He believes if he can be successful there, that he will be protected under laws that, that protect federal officials uh, from state prosecutions. And he argues that everything that he did, everything that's alleged here, he did in his role as chief of staff. But just yesterday, the DA, Fonnie Willis, she weighed in and she said, no, what you did was political activity. It wasn't part of your job as the chief of staff. And I think the focus on Monday is really gonna be that call between former President Trump and the then Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Mark Meadows was on that call. Mm -hmm. We're seeing the people they want to talk to. So that's really going to be something to watch on Monday because we know other people, including the former president, are going to try to get their cases removed as well. Yeah, and of course, I mean, just stunning to see Mark Meadows' mugshot as people who covered the White House yeah. to see the former chief of staff now have this, this mugshot that has been published is just remarkable. But also, when you hear, it's not just the district attorney who is saying, no, 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 that was not just official White House chief of staff duties. 
People like Mark Short, who was Vice President Pence's chief of staff at the time, he described Meadows as this ringleader, yeah. uh, essentially, of the activity that happened here in Georgia. That's exactly right. Remember the January 6th committee, one of their big conclusions was that every road of this alleged conspiracy went right through Mark Meadows, which is why it was so surprising when he was not charged in the federal case. Now, I will say he has one of the probably the best legal teams. He's represented by George Twilliger, he's a top former Justice Department official. He has a great team of lawyers and they have artfully managed to avoid him being prosecuted at the federal level. So I, I think we were there at the time. Clearly, when you're the chief of staff, everything should run through you. But Mark Meadows, you know, he really tried in many ways to enable everything the former president wanted to do, particularly after after the election. So to see this mugshot today, again, it's the first time we've seen him be criminally charged for his alleged activities in and around the election. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see that hearing on Monday, Jake, of course, and what that looks like going to be a big moment for Mark Meadows overall. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, uh, appreciate it. Um, my panel's back with me. Laura, uh, Mark Meadows is fighting to move. Uh, oh, Laura's over there. Let's <laughs> move the trial. The red, uh, the red lipstick is me. So I'm sorry. I'm, just, uh, I'm trying to read it off the prompter because it's just coming in. Uh, Mark Meadows is, is, is fighting to move his case to federal court. Do you think a judge would approve that? Uh, and if so, what would that mean for the other co-defendants to move we're, it to federal to federal case? We were just talking about this because there's a bit of a, a surprise, surprise, some wild, wild west and uncharted territories. You can get things removed to federal court, but you have to meet some criteria. The biggest thing is to know that what you're claiming is that, look, it was part of my job. It's called the color of office. I was doing that which I was required to do and able to do. And so this ought to be in federal court. I was chief of staff. However, the elections are the purview of the states, and there might be a bit of a hurdle to climb to suggest that as chief of staff, I had some reason or job reason to meddle, as it's alleged in this instance. Another thing, of course, is the why you want to go to federal court. Number one, a different and wider jury pool, right? Not just Fulton County, but the Northern District of Georgia, which would be much, much more expansive. Another thing, you've got, of course, the federal docket, meaning it could be a little bit quicker in the process of it. The, pre the rules for the judges are a little bit... Um, more developed. They publish their opinions more often. And so, of course, they have a case law precedent to build on. A number of factors are in play. But if your sole motivation is because you do not want a certain jury, that's not going to bode as well as having a substantive basis to suggest I was doing what I'm allowed to do in my job. But he's got to actually show that. Not the highest of burdens to actually meet but it's significant. And we were talking about what will that mean in terms of removal? Does that mean it's now a state uh, violation in a state conviction? Is it pardonable? A right. little bit of uncharted territory. That's exactly right. We really Mike, Michael, I want to ask you because uh, I heard you talking to Anderson a couple weeks ago during a previous mm -hmm. indictment slash right. arrest, uh, whatever it was, um, about uh, jury selection in Atlanta. Sometimes it can take quite some time. Sure. Um, and now the, the judge assigned in this case has a reputation for being very good, very efficient, not uh, allowing a lot of crap going on in this courtroom. But um, it can't take months for jury selection, right? Well, it, it can take months. There's another RICO case going on now in Atlanta, that, and they've been picking a jury for over seven months. Now, how is that possible? Well, I mean, if you think about it, you're asking jurors, can they, can they take a year off of their life to sit on a jury? And so that immediately narrows your panel, and it means that many people cannot. I mean, if you're a you know, a hairdresser, you're going to lose your clients. If you're right. a doctor, you're going to lose your patients, and, and on and on and on. And so it's a, a child care. 
can be a problem. And so it's it's a but, significant but that, burden. But that's the issue. But that's for every trial. That's the it, issue. It is. But you, when you're starting to talk about the length of a trial and what it can take, and especially in a case with 19 co-defendants, uh, you're talking about a significant amount of time. It, I will tell you, I think it would take less time in the federal court. Uh, one difference in jury selection in the state court is pretty much the lawyers get to do it. You get to talk to the jurors, you get to know them, you let them get to know you, and you sort of start to lay your case out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Federal court is a much more rigid process, and oftentimes the federal judges uh, do a lot of the voir dire, and they, and they, they really uh, trim back what the lawyers can say. Federal court is a little bit more rule-based. It's a little bit like a gentleman's duel, and the state court is a little bit like the gunfight at the OK Corral where you just <laughs> fight it out. By the way, can you imagine the wide, I say wide deer, but you know, I'm not. Well, I'm from Georgia. the South. I love right. it. I love it. I'm from Minnesota. But when you talk about the wide deer process, imagine what that jury selection list of questions is. Right. I mean, right. it's not that you have to know nothing about the case. That would be absurd to even suggest. But can you be an impartial juror? What are the questions you're going to have to all agree upon to decide what are the criteria to decide who is impartial? That's going to be a long Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. All of this just comes back to what we have been discussing all along with this case. Which Fonnie Willis made a lot of choices here. And she, one of the biggest ones was deciding to have this many right. co-defendants. And Jack Smith just simply did not do that, probably anticipating some of those issues. And it is going to be uh, something that complicates the, the road here for her. There, there's a public interest, certainly, in having uh, this tried as quickly as possible. But based on what you all are saying and what a lot of our legal experts have said, it just seems highly unlikely, maybe impossible for that to happen quickly and without complications, partly because, rightfully so, every one of these defendants has a right to a fair trial right. for them, yeah. not necessarily for, not for the, the group. process. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, Jamie, we should note, we have not seen Trump's prior three indictments, arrests, arraignments, uh, impact him negatively on the campaign trail at this pro process, and this time, when he's only trying to appeal to Republicans. Uh, in fact, uh, People have seen, I mean, in some ways, uh, even his opponents say he's gotten a bump and Republicans have rallied around him. Do you think, do you have any reason to expect anything different from today's activities? Certainly he doesn't think it's any different. That's why he picked today, the day after the debate. He is happy to use up uh, as much oxygen as possible. Can I just go back to Mark Meadows for, for one second, sure. being chief of staff? Let's bring up the mugshot if we can, yeah. I have known many chiefs of staff having covered Washington for many years. I don't know, and, and I've called several of them in the last couple of weeks. I, I don't know any of them who would tell you that this was in their job description of chief of staff. In fact, when campaigns are going on and elections are going on, they are very careful to say, I'm working at the White House that's my job description. I'm not working in the campaign. And you have White House officials leaving the White House for that exact reason so that they can do campaign stuff. So it's, it strikes me, I mean, just from the convention of Washington's and perhaps federal election laws as well, that that's going to be an issue, too. Like how much of the picking up the phone and saying, well, we need you to find these votes is part of the official duties of a White House chief. Well, of that's the basis of one of the charges, right? I mean, you look at what Mark Meadows has been charged with. One is, of course, RICO as part of the enterprise, but the other one is about solicitation, a violation of an oath by a public officer. That's the idea of what do I have to say? Is it a phone call? 
What yeah. did I say in that moment? Is right. that going to be enough? That's going to be really sort of the novel territory here as to what was my job description. Was it scheduling a meeting? Was it making a telephone call? That's his defense. All right, everyone stay with me. We'll come back. I'll come, I'll come to you first, I promise. Uh, we're standing by for Donald Trump to arrive at the Newark airport. He's going to head to Georgia, flying privately. He will turn himself into the Fulton County Jail this evening. A former Trump lawyer will join me live next. What is he thinking as his former client is set to be placed under arrest? And welcome back to CNN's coverage of the Georgia indictment of Donald Trump. Right now you're looking at live images from the Fulton County Jail where in a few hours the former president will be placed under arrest on racketeering and other charges relating to his attempts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Tim Parlatori joins us now. He departed from Trump's legal team in the special counsel's classified documents case in May. Now he is defending co-conspirator number five, uh, who has been identified as former NYPD Commissioner uh, Bernie Carrick. Um, Tim, thanks for journey- joining us. This is a case, this, this current case that we're talking about in Georgia, an enormous case, mountains of evidence to go through. Uh, the district attorney, Fannie Willis, uh, proposed uh, starting the trial uh, October 23rd this year. Um, is that even physically possible? That's laughable. The idea that you can start a trial that quickly, you know, a RICO trial with this amount of discovery and, you know, and also a case where you have pretty significant pretrial motions to be litigated. Uh, yeah, I think that that's um, that may be good for press releases, but I don't think anybody in that courtroom thinks that's a real date. What, what would be a reasonable, reasonable date, do you think? So setting aside the election entirely, you know, this is a case that, you know, RICO has significant amount of discovery to it. It's a complex case. The trial itself is probably going to take four plus months to try, I would I would expect. And so, you know, the average time for that kind of a case, you take at least two years before you even get to jury selection. So I can't possibly see this going any faster than that. And that's one of the problems that you run into when you choose to bring a RICO case as, a poor, as opposed to something more simple like a fraud case, like Jack Smith did. Hmm. We, we know that your client, Bernie Carrick, traveled with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani yesterday, uh, telling Newsmax that Giuliani was, quote, in good spirits, but frustrated, upset, and angry, unquote. Uh, Giuliani uh, is tied with Trump uh, at 13 criminal charges in this case. Um, so far, mm-hmm. his current attorney, Giuliani's current, current attorney, won't even commit to staying on through the trial. Um, how do you see this playing out for the former mayor? You know, a lot of it is going to depend on funding for defense. You know, like I said, when you have a trial that's going to be, you know, four plus months long, you know, as a lawyer, I look at that to try and figure out what kind of fee to set. You know, I have to set aside everything. You know, I can't take on any new clients. I can't take on any new cases and basically shut everything down for four plus months. It's a very expensive proposition. And I think the prosecutors know that. And that's one of the reasons why they bring cases like this is because it does bleed the defendants dry. So a lot of it's going to come into whether he is able to find the funding to actually defend himself in this case. Give me a back of the envelope number for how much representation from from a good attorney uh, for four months would cost. I'm not going to hold you to it, but like I just have no idea what kind of money we're talking about. 
For a case of this magnitude, yeah, not just the trial fee, but also all the pre-trial and, and everything, all the motions, all the discovery review, it's going to be really, honestly, a million dollars minimum. We've heard the bond conditions for these defendants state that they cannot discuss the case amongst themselves, though their attorneys can. Uh, do you know what level of back-channeling yeah. might be going on between these 19 defendants' lawyers? Is there a special text chain, uh, an email thread? That is something that you do uh, do standard in a case like this, or you set up a Slack channel uh, or something like that to try to coordinate uh, between attorneys, have regular Zoom meetings. You know, I've been in several cases where it's multi-defendant, and you you want to make sure that everybody coordinates. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that surprised me about Mark Meadows kind of running the federal court the way that he is, is you have many defendants that have grounds to make removal motions, and it's much stronger if you have them all coordinate and do it together as opposed to one person running off before everybody else, doing it himself and potentially running into a ruling that's inconsistent with the others. As mentioned, you departed from Trump's legal team, um, but you didn't fully leave behind his legal troubles. We're also hearing about all these financial issues with Trump paying his lawyers, not to mention Giuliani's financial troubles. Have you heard any other attorney? Oh, you've you've been paid? I'm good. You're good. good. Have you heard of any other attorneys representing any of the defendants raising concerns about getting paid? Yeah, I mean, I've heard um, I've heard that Jen Ellis has been complaining about that. Uh, It's it's certainly a problem. And, you know, but at the same time, when you have 19 defendants in a case where each one of them could require a million or more, I mean, depending on. Yeah, how many lawyers and, and what type of lawyers you pick, um, it could go up from there. So you're talking about you know, 20 plus million, probably even much more, if you're going to try and pay for everybody's lawyers in this case. So you know, it is extraordinarily expensive if you just forget about the fact that there are also these other cases out there. Yeah. You know, the Jack Smith cases and the uh, New York case. So. We're watching it's expensive the, all around. Let me, let me Even Donald Trump's going to have trouble. Yeah, interrupt for one second, just because on your Im- the images you're seeing right from right outside Newark, uh, Liberty International Airport in New Jersey is uh, Donald Trump's motorcade, uh, accompanied by police, uh, Secret Service, and others making their way to the private air- airfield uh, from whence uh, Donald Trump and his private plane will take off and go down to Atlanta, uh, and we are seeing the rear of that motorcade. Uh, on, on your, on your uh, screen right now. Uh, Tim Parlatori, as always, uh, thank you uh, so much for your, uh, your candor and joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Right now, Donald Trump's motorcade, as I noted, is heading to the airport in New Jersey to a private airfield. Tonight, Donald Trump will surrender at the rather notorious Fulton County Jail, uh, not a place anybody wants to be. Uh, what should he expect to see When he is placed under arrest, I'm going to talk to two former Georgia prosecutors next. In just a matter of minutes, former President Donald Trump's plane will be wheels up from Newark International Airport en route to Atlanta, Georgia, where he will face the music and surrender at the Fulton County Jail with 13 fresh criminal charges related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Caitlin? 
Yeah, and of course, this is the fourth time this year, Jake, that we have seen the former president turn himself in to local or federal officials. Joining me now here to discuss as we are outside the courthouse waiting on that fourth arrival, Robert James, former DeKalb County District Attorney, and Melissa Redman, who served in the Fulton County DA's office for more than a decade. Thank you both for being here. Uh, can we just, there have been a lot of fast-moving developments today, and notably with Kenneth Chesborough, who is one of the 19 co-defendants here. He had filed basically a speedy motion trial or requested one. Um, it seemed to be almost bluffing to see if, if the district attorney would do it. And now we've just seen the judge, Scott McAfee here, say, okay, it can happen in October. I mean, that's a really aggressive timeline. Well, it, I think it's too aggressive and I hope it wasn't a bluff. You know, you would think that if he filed a motion for a speedy trial, which would get his case tried in two terms of court or by as early as October, that he'd be prepared because if you're not, it could backfire. Um, you don't have your discovery, you don't have any information, so I don't know how you could be ready to try a case by October if you're the defense lawyer. So what is his legal team thinking right now? I mean, this indictment just happened a matter of weeks ago, and now he is set to potentially, I mean, do you think it actually happens come October? Um, it's difficult to determine what they're thinking, but obviously if they try a case in October, it's going to affect more of the defendants than just him, and I can tell you right now that the other people in the case do not want to go to trial by October. And what is your sense of the moves here, of just how quickly so much of this has been moving, not just with him, but with the other developments we've seen? I mean, the one thing that Judge Scott McAfee did make clear in this setting this trial date for Kent Chesborough is this only applies to him. So that means it does not apply to the other 18 co-defendants here, including former President Trump, who his legal team came out and said, that's not a date we want. Right. So the, he can ask for a speedy trial, but he can't force all the other defendants to go to to ask for a speedy trial or to go to trial in October. So the judge really doesn't have much of a choice. He has to allow that trial to take place within those two terms of court, but he doesn't have to force the other defendants to do so. Yeah. Can we talk also about what Trump is going to see? I mean, he is going to be walking into the Fulton County Jail in just a matter of hours to surrender himself, to post part of that $200,000 bond that he's agreed to. What are you, What is he going to see when he walks in there? In a, in a he'll few walk hours? in, he'll see a lobby, um, kind of a waiting room type area of other um, where other people will go to turn themselves in. It's not an uncommon occurrence. Um, he'll be called up, they'll take his identifying information, um, he'll be fingerprinted, pre uh, presumably um, photographed. Um, his bond will be placed into the computer system, whatever the bond is for each charge, and as soon as that information is uploaded, he'll be um, released back out. And as you're looking at all of this and seeing how these developments are happening for the other co-defendants here, what stands out to you? Well, what stands out to me is just, you know, the speed of the process, right? You know, one person has asked for a speedy trial. Obviously, the others do not want a speedy trial. Um, and so it's just, it's just really bizarre, right? You know, the fact that someone would ask to be tried by as early as October. Um, what's interesting is that, you know, if you do try the defendant that is asked to be tried by October in October, then you're going to have to turn right back around and try the others later. So it's going to have to be done more than once. And so, so could yeah. that complicate Trump's case here if Kenneth Chisborough, if his case does, his trial case does go to trial actually in October? What kind of impact does that have on on Mark Meadows, on Donald Trump, on all the others here? Yeah, well, you know, it could complicate or it could give them a sneak preview on what the evidence is going to be, right? Which is something that no prosecutor wants to try a case twice because the defense gets an opportunity to see, you know, how witnesses are going to testify. There's a transcript and it makes the second trial for those that didn't participate in the first trial perhaps easier. And you've worked in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, I mean, for, for more than 10 years. 
When you've seen the the attacks from Trump and others on not just the district attorney here, but other prosecutors here, I mean, part of his bond restrictions are not, you know, going after other other witnesses. One big question that I've heard, you know, thrown around Trump's orbit is, is what happens if, I mean, he violates those. People seem to think there won't be any real repercussions. Well, in reality, he'll probably get called in front of the judge. The judge will issue a stern warning to him to not do that again. But if we think about who should be in jail, it's really for nonviolent offenders. So I think that's where that um, idea comes in that nothing really is going to happen. Technically, if he violates his bond, he can, his bond can be revoked and he can be placed into custody. Um, but given the nature of the charges, um, the overcrowding we have at the jail, I think that's why we think it's unrealistic for there to be any real repercussions. Well, we'll wait to see what it looks like. Thank you both. Obviously, both great expertise in these areas. You know this area well. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Jake, back to you. Thanks, Kaylin. So Donald Trump is about to surrender in Fulton County, Georgia. His former White House chief of staff was booked just hours ago, along with a host of other co-defendants. Do they all plan to fight this case together? We're going to talk to one of the defense attorneys next. Stay with us. And we're back with our coverage of the Georgia indictment of Donald Trump. Mr. Trump's motorcade arrived at the Newark, New Jersey airport just a few minutes ago. And very soon he will be wheels up flying privately uh, to Atlanta before surrendering at the Fulton County Jail. Uh, one of his co-defendants is a gentleman named John Eastman, an attorney. John Eastman's lawyer, Harvey Silverglate, uh, joins us now. Uh, Mr. Silverglee, thanks so much for joining us. I, I want to start by getting your reaction to District Attorney Fannie Willis's proposed trial date start of October 23rd. What, what do you make of that? It's never going to happen. <clears throat> what do you think it's would be take a more much much longer? What do you think would be a more reasonable start say, date? I would say this case will be will start trials anywhere from uh, 18 to 24 months from now. Another uh, co-conspirator in the case, uh, Kenneth uh, Cheesebro, is asking for a speedy trial. Um, do you personally want uh, this trial to happen sooner or later? Well, let me tell you what we're going to do. Um, Eastman is in a very different position from every other defendant in that he was acting as a lawyer giving legal advice. Uh, he was not part of a conspiracy, assuming there even was a conspiracy. We are going to move to sever his case from the others and move for a severed trial, which means we want to be tried alone. And we believe that the trial of Eastman alone will take about three weeks. Um, it's a very simple case. We expect to win it in three weeks. And we'd like to have a speedy trial. That is, we'd like him to be tried right away. It'll take three weeks, and the whole nightmare will be over for him. That's what we're going to we're going to do. One of the allegations made by District Attorney Fannie Willis, and for our audience, the, we should remind everyone that individuals are, are innocent until proven guilty. But one of the allegations is that your client knew that information he and Donald Trump were submitting. Uh, in 2021, I believe September 2021, in a lawsuit alleging malfeasance uh, in Georgia, that that Mr. Eastman knew that the information was false in the sworn uh, document. What what is your response to that? 
Eastman was coming up with all kinds of theories that were very different, very new, a very cutting edge, and was tossing them out. I want to point out something. Eastman didn't bribe anybody. He didn't threaten anybody. He threw out legal theories that were, it turned out, were wrong. But at the time, they were perfectly, that's the job of a lawyer, throw out all kinds of cutting-edge theories, try it and see what flies. He did not bribe anybody. He did not commit any perjury. We expect that he will, he will, his defense will be he acted as lawyers have been acting for hundreds of years, and he did nothing criminal. But, Mr. Silverglade, um, the, the assertion made by the district attorney is not that there were unproven or false legal theories in this sworn document. It was that there were assertions of fact uh, that Mr. Eastman knew to be untrue. Uh, claims about alleged election malfeasance in Georgia that were just false uh, and had been asserted to be false by individuals like the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, for months and repeatedly. Uh, That is not the same, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is not the same as a flawed legal theory, a a fraudulent assertion of fact. But tell me what's criminal about it. He didn't bribe anybody. Tell me what's criminal. He didn't force anybody. Well, I believe that the, the, the charge, I think making false statements in a sworn document is considered fraud, is it not? Well, that will be determined in a trial. I don't think that anything Eastman did constitutes fraud. And that, that's for the court to decide. And we'd like it to be decided sooner rather than later. This is a very, this is a very unusual case. Um, it's the first of its kind. It's and it is a RICO case, uh, which makes it unduly complicated. This could have been a very simple case. It could have been in ten pages. This is like a telephone book here, um, and um, we will find out. I think he's going to be acquitted, and you can call me back at the end of the of the case, and you could. Either I'll say I told you so or you'll say I told you so. Well, be that as it may, I, I believe what Fannie Willis is suggesting in this indictment is that she has written correspondence from your client, John Eastman, uh, suggesting that he knows the information in the document to be false, advising Donald Trump not to sign the document because the, in, in, the information, the assertions are false. And then nonetheless, he and Donald Trump submit the document, even though John Eastman is, at least according to Fannie Willis, I believe, on record in documentation saying he knows the information to be false. Well, he advised his client not to sign it. That was his role as a lawyer. And um, we will see whether or not that's criminal. I do not believe he acted in any way criminally. But that's to be decided not by you and not by me, but by the court. Are you concerned at all that other co-defendants or any of the 30 unindicted co-conspirators might now be cooperating with District Attorney Fannie Willis's office uh, behind your back to get your client in jail, to put him in prison? Not concerned at all as long as they tell the truth. The problem with plea bargains, as you probably know, is that when a prosecutor says to a defendant, 
If you're convicted, we're going to recommend 10 years. If you cooperate, we're going to recommend probation. The problem with that is it gets many people to tell a false story. Um, you know, the, the way we criminal defense lawyers put it, the prosecutors uh, cause the, the defendants not only to sing, but also to compose. It's the composing part that's concerning. If they tell the truth, we have no fears whatsoever. Harry Silverglade, uh, thank you. Harvey Silverglade, thank you so much uh, for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. As Trump gets ready to surrender in Georgia, how a group of House Republicans are launching an investigation of their own into the top prosecutor in this case. Fonnie Willis, stay with us. As Trump prepares to surrender in Fulton County, Georgia, his allies on Capitol Hill have launched an investigation into what? Into Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee want to know if there is more to this question that our very own Sarah Murray asked Fonnie Willis last week. Take a listen. And have you had any contact with the special counsel about the overlap between this indictment and the federal? I'm not going to discuss our investigation at this time. Joining us now, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a former member of the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, Congressman Raskin, uh, first, uh, tell us your health is okay. You're doing well. Yes, thank you. I'm hanging tough. Um, uh, so far, I am cancer free, so I'm in remission and uh, my eyebrows came back and my hair is coming back. So um, uh, it's been a good summer. We're glad to we're glad to hear that. I, is there any merit to the investigation that the House Judiciary Committee has launched into Fonnie Willis and questions about uh, whether she coordinated at all with special counsel Jack Smith in his office? No, I mean, I hope people recognize how fundamentally antithetical this is to our system of justice, where every time um, any of Donald Trump's allegedly criminal actions are investigated, then immediately the Republicans launch an attack on the investigators, on the FBI, on the Department of Justice, on uh, a district attorney in New York or Georgia or what have you. And so it's just an attempt to, um, you know, just throw grease in the gears and to mess up the possibility of justice taking place. Are you concerned um, that Republicans might uh, deploy that playbook uh, against you uh, and be successful politically in any way? Well, uh, you know, they seem to be taking their orders from Donald Trump as if they're not part of a political party, but they're part of a religious cult. And uh, when uh, Donald Trump uh, trains his wrath on a particular person, then they go after that person with whatever they've got. Um, Again, that's a, a fundamental departure from what American politics has been like. And, you know, we're living in a, a scoundrel time of just outrageous demonization and vilification and isolation of people. Um, Donald Trump has been given every possible due process right, presumption of innocence, even in the face of a mountain of evidence of his uh, criminal wrongdoing. But, uh, you know, those around him have tried to attack anyone who brings Donald Trump to justice. They want to see that he's completely above the rule of law and um, impervious to uh, the general justice system that everybody else has to deal with. 
President Trump uh, is currently on his way to surrender from New Jersey to Georgia. Um, how problematic do you think this case in Georgia is for him compared to the other indictments? I think we can agree the New York Attorney General case um, uh, is, uh, is probably the weakest. What do you make of the other three? Well, I mean, Fannie Willis set forth in granular detail what this attack on the 2020 presidential election meant at the state level. And it meant trying to coerce and intimidate and harass uh, local election officials and uh, trying to get them to abandon their oath of office, trying to get them to um, essentially abandon the duties that they had sworn to uphold in their office. And so um, I think that it's uh, it's a devastating indictment when you look at every component part of it. And More devastating really than the other two the, from in, Jack Smith? Well, um, I think that Jack Smith uh, sets out in a very powerful way uh, what the general overall plan was. Uh, when we got to January 6th, the plan was to interfere with a federal proceeding to shut down the ability of the House and the Senate in joint session to count electoral college votes. It was an attempt to steal away from the American people uh, our election and therefore to defraud the government out of an honest election, which Joe Biden had won by more than 7 million votes, 306 to 232 in the Electoral College. So I think he set forth the, <clears throat> the very broad uh, parameters of the criminal conspiracy and conduct taking right. place. But you're an attorney but and a gentleman with a Georgia, strong opinions. Which, yeah. which, do you, which case of, the, of these three, which case do you think is the strongest one? It doesn't mean you have to think the other two are, are weak, but which is the strongest of the two Jack Smith uh, cases and the Fannie Wills case? Which do you think is the strongest? Well, <clears throat> you know, all of them, you know, provide their own, uh, you know, powerful narrative and, and also their own complexities. I mean, I think the most open and shut case is the government documents case because it was very clear that Donald Trump uh, intended to steal those documents, to pilfer those documents, to hide them. And then even when given the chance to return them, he only returned a small subpart uh, and continue to hold the other one. So I think uh, that one seems to me absolutely overwhelming. All right. Democratic Congressman uh, Jamie Raskin, thank you. We're glad uh, that you've had good health uh, this summer. Appreciate it. And we're standing by for Trump to be wheels up from New Jersey as he makes his way there to the Fulton County Jail. What he will see once he gets there coming up. You're looking live at the Fulton County, Georgia jail, where in just a few hours, Donald Trump will turn himself in and be placed under arrest. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, D.C., uh, and this is The Lead. This hour, I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Caitlin Collins, who's down there outside the Fulton County jail. We expect Mr. Trump to surrender at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. That's what he announced he would do anyway. His motorcade arrived at the Newark, New Jersey airport in the last hour for his private flight down to Atlanta. A number of Trump co-defendants also surrendered today, including former White House Chief of Staff and former North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows. And the first trial date in the court has been set. Pro-Trump uh, lawyer Ken Cheesebro, who is the alleged architect of the fake electors plot, we're told, 
Uh, Cheeseboro is set to go on trial October 23rd. His team asked for a speedy trial, uh, which is his right in Georgia, uh, although Donald Trump's lawyers oppose the speedy trial. Um, Caitlin, you're down there in Georgia outside the jail, Fulton County. What is the environment like there? Uh, are there a lot of supporters of the former presidents? I wouldn't say there's a lot, Jake, but it kind of looks like similar to the scenes that we've seen the other times that Trump has had to turn himself in, whether that be in New York or in Miami or in Washington, D.C., in those latest uh, federal indictments. They are now here. Of course, we're outside the Fulton County Jail. Jake, for those who don't know, this is a notorious jail. I mean, there have been so many issues with this, whether it comes to uh, actually crumbling walls, faulty air conditioning, bad plumbing. I mean, there have been sheriffs who have said it's a humanitarian crisis, basically, what's happening inside that. The Justice Department has opened investigations into it. That is going to be the environment that Donald Trump is walking into. And the reason I say that is because after he turned himself in at the courthouse in Washington, D.C., just a few weeks ago, Jake, I had heard from sources that he was in this irritated mood leaving because it was kind of this process of being taken into a parking garage, being processed, having this lengthy lengthy process where then he was complaining about the conditions uh, of Washington, D.C. Now he is going to be entering a much different environment from accounts of, of those who have been inside when he goes inside the Fulton County Jail. And of course, one question still remains is whether or not we are going to see his mugshot. We saw Mark Meadows's mugshot earlier. We've seen Rudy Giuliani's, Sidney Powell's. As of this morning, Trump's team said it was still unclear that it was definitely happening, though that does seem to be the case that there is going to be one, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. My panel is back with me. And, and Jamie, uh, the Fulton County Sheriff said all 19 defendants would be treated the same way when they surrender in terms of fingerprinting, in terms of mug shots. Um, but it does seem that the, the DA's office, uh, they have to make some accommodations for the fact that this is a former president. And he's coming in with a, a huge motorcade, right? Uh, it's a motorcade that makes him look as if he's still uh, the president. Look, they are not treating him the same as as other people. I think Michael can speak to it, but uh, we had on CNN last week a former lieutenant from the sheriff's office who describes how when you normally come in, your shoelaces are taken from you, your tie is taken from you, your belt is taken from you. For risk of suicide. For risk, right, for, for safety reasons. Donald Trump is not going to have to do anything like that and, and no, that, uh, you're right. I mean, remember that the Secret Service is controlling him. I mean, they, they control his person. The only thing the locals will control will be the process. And so the Secret Service is not going to subject him to things like a, a normal pat down search and those types of things that somebody might get when they process in. Nor is he going to come into a crowded booking room that might be the case on any other day. Uh, with, with, you know, the smells that go along with jails from sweat and backflow toilets. And this is a notorious It is. Jail, it's it's, it's a terrible place to be. And so there, he, he's not going to be, that, that's not happening for him. He's going to be brought in. The halls will be clear. He'll go into a secure room. Secret Service has been there for a week. They've been checking things out. They've made sure that there's no threat to him. And they literally will form a, 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 a protective zone around him that's almost like a sphere. Well, for, uh, so they're watching out for but, but let me, I want to ask I want to ask you a question, Laura, because... Look, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I, I can see both sides in this, but the idea of Donald Trump getting a mugshot, the purpose of a mugshot is if the person escapes or goes on the lam so that the public knows what the person looks like and they can, they can search and find him. I could theoretically understand that about Mark Meadows, who 
you know, most Americans probably don't know what he looks like. Donald Trump is one of the most photographed people in the world. So what's the argument that there really is a need for a mugshot? I'm not saying you even believe this, Mm -hmm. but give me the theoretical argument why he should get a mugshot. Well, the theory of why you even have it published or even have a mugshot in the first place is not just the idea of identification in case you're a fugitive. It's a part of a court record at that point in time. This is how you looked at this particular point in time. And this might, if it's a criminal matter, say it's a homicide or it's a drug bust, which is not what's happening here. Here is how you looked and can identify from a witness at trial and that sort of comparison. Here, it's not just about shaming in Georgia. They're not going to say it's just about shaming. They've been criticized for being able to publicize their mugshots. Even those who are obviously innocent, who want to take it down one day, still have this up there. The reason they're saying is because, look, you have allegedly offended the people of Georgia, the state of Georgia, and you must abide by the same process of everybody else. But let me just tell you why it's so significant he is being treated differently than other people. It will be an argument he will eventually make as to why he might say, look, I ought to be in federal court because not only am I, look at my motorcade secret service, I was the president and I was at the time I did what you accused me of doing. And it sounds a little bit like reminiscent of one Richard Nixon, if the president does it, it's not illegal. He will make arguments as part of his defense, undoubtedly, that the intention for what he was doing was not criminal. It was executing and trying to enforce the laws of the land. The difference, of course, is, again, civics lesson. It is the purview of the states to cover their elections. But what you're going to see visually will track what he makes legally as a defense. And, Abby, I've heard um, some people who aren't even necessarily defenders of Donald Trump but uh, saying this does seem to be rooted in trying to embarrass Donald Trump, putting up a mugshot. There's all this. We still don't know if it's true or not, but all the speculation about whether or not he's going to be weighed uh, as most prisoners are. And then that weight is going to be publicized. I heard there's even some odds makers out there giving an over under on what his weight will be. Um, you, no, I'm serious. You yeah, can actually uh, yeah, place I a mean, bet on that. But uh, and I'm not saying that you should. But but uh, <laughs> I'm not a betting person. But you can understand why people would say this really seems rooted in embarrassing. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely understand that. I mean, as we've been discussing, we know what the guy looks like. We don't need a photo of him. Even on this day, we know what he looks like. So um, I I do think that's it. But there is something to be said for a process as a process. If it applies to Mark Meadows, why would it not apply to another co-defendant? I think that's an argument as well. Look, a lot of Trump supporters just want him to be treated differently. And if that doesn't happen today, it it won't be the end of the world. All right. Stay with me, everyone. Uh, Coming up, the tight security outside the Fulton County Jail and the horrific conditions inside as Donald Trump makes his way there now. At this moment, President Trump is preparing to fly from New Jersey to Atlanta, uh, where he will surrender on charges in that Georgia election subversion case. Mr. Trump will be booked at the Fulton County Jail. It's a jail known for rather deplorable conditions, including inmate deaths and excessive force and a prison population that is more than double the amount it was designed to hold. Four people have lost their lives there in just the past few weeks. The jail has also been deemed structurally unsafe. CNN's Brian Todd has been closely following this story. Uh, Brian, this is the site of the bookings for Donald Trump and his co-defendants. They're not going to spend any nights there, but it does give us an opportunity to shine a light on, on this jail's horrible reputation. 
That's right, Jake. This place is really nothing short of a hulking, sprawling nightmare. Anybody connected to the criminal justice system in the Atlanta area knows that if you're ever told you got to go down to Rice Street, brace yourself because it's going to be horrible. Uh, we can give you some details on this place now. Fulton County Jail is the formal name. It is known as Rice Street because of its address. It opened in 1989, but almost immediately after it opened, it was overcrowded, had deplorable conditions, and was just, you know, just a horrible place to be. Just last month, the Justice Department announced an investigation into this place because of, quote, allegations of unsafe, unsanitary living conditions, excessive force, and violence. Now, as for the overcrowding, some pretty staggering figures. The capacity of the Fulton County Jail, 2,688, but as of April, this is according to the state of Georgia, it housed 3,221 inmates. That's about 120 percent capacity. Seven inmates have died there this year. Fifteen died last year. And we have some images of just the horrible conditions grime, dirt all over the place, toilets overflowing, air conditioning broken, uh, lice, bed bugs, other insects everywhere. Look at that. It's just absolutely horrible. Now, one notorious case from last year, this young man, LaShawn Thompson, found dead in his cell last September, 35 years old. His lawyers and the medical examiners say he died from neglect, malnourishment, other horrible conditions. But it was also, he was found with uh, bed bugs and uh, lice just infesting his body. Uh, His lawyers released uh, images of his cell. Look at that. Just absolutely deplorable conditions, Jake. Another anecdote that we can tell you. Last year, we just put up some more of these images of just what this place looks like inside. Last year at a public meeting, law enforcement officers wheeled into this public meeting a wheelbarrow full of shanks. The shanks were taken, they say, by inmates who just basically grabbed crumbling pieces of the walls and fashioned shanks out of them to attack other inmates. That's how bad this place is. Look at just some of the walls and the other conditions in here as that officer walks through and kind of shows you. This place is absolutely deplorable. The Sheriff Patrick Labatt, the Sheriff of Fulton County, has acknowledged these conditions, but he's, uh, he's saying that he's requesting more than $2 billion in county funding to build a new jail. Let's see if he gets that. Jake. All right, Brian Todd, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I want to bring in John Miller. He's CNN's Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst. Um, John, uh, back to the case. Uh, we know at least um, one of Trump's co-defendants is inside that Fulton County jail. Uh, Harrison Floyd, uh, the leader of a group called Black Voices for Trump, he did not negotiate bond prior to turning himself in. Um, could Fulton County be liable if something happens to him? Well, uh, the system that they've been using is um, a little unusual. Um, it's that you go to the courthouse, you know, where the district attorney's office is, and you negotiate your bond ahead of time. So that's what Mark Meadows did. That's what Donald Trump did. That's what Rudy Giuliani did. Um, then to a bondsman, if necessary, to secure that money. And then you go to the jail with that package. Apparently, he showed up in the jail without that package, which means the process reverses, which is he has to get processed there on the warrant and then show up in court and have uh, the bail set by a magistrate. So the question is, how long is it going to be uh, before he can get in front of uh, a judge there? Mr. Floyd could have his first court appearance in the next 24 hours. What happens once he gets in, in front of a judge? Well, then they work out the bond package that could have and probably should have been worked out before he got there. Um, because now he's caught between those two systems waiting for one of them to catch up, which will be the court side. All right, John Miller, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. What Trump's mindset might be as he prepares to surrender in his fourth 
criminal case. We're going to talk to three people who know him well next. If you were looking from, for images of New Jersey, here are some for you. Uh, live shots at Newark International Airport. You can see Donald Trump's plane uh, waiting, taxiing before takeoff soon. He will be wheels up to Fulton County, Georgia, specifically to Atlanta, and then he will drive to Fulton County, Georgia, where he will surrender and be placed under arrest. Joining me now are three people who know Donald Trump very well. Uh, Sarah Matthews, you used to work uh, for Mr. Trump uh, in the communications office. What do you think is going through his mind right now? Honestly, I think he's been through this three times already. This is the fourth time in Trump world. I feel like they kind of thrive in the chaos. And so right now he probably knows the drill. He's not too worried. Uh, he knows that he's dominating the news cycle. He's probably happy about the fact that no one is talking about the debate last night with his opponents. They're all focused on him. And so that is probably good for him politically. But legally, I know he has to be worried because there's so many defendants in this case and he's got to be thinking, oh no, what if some of them flip and start to cooperate. So this is a different case than the other ones that he's facing. And so I think that he probably is worried about this one more so than the others. And you can, if you're watching your screen, there it is. Uh, Donald Trump's private uh, plane uh, is wheels up uh, to Atlanta, Georgia from Newark Liberty International uh, Airport. Um, Alyssa, um, this afternoon we got a mug shot of Donald Trump's uh, former chief of staff at the White House, Mark Meadows. Uh, you know Mark Meadows pretty well. What goes through your mind um, when you see mug shots of people with whom you used to work? It honestly makes me sad, especially Mark Meadows. I mean, this was a you know multi-time member of Congress, somebody who could have stayed representing North Carolina's 11th district for probably the rest of his life if he had wanted to, but he sort of made this deal with the devil working for Donald Trump. And as I've mentioned to you before, Jake, um, in after Joe Biden won the election, there was this period of time that Mark Meadows was kind of playing both sides of the will Trump leave office peacefully or will he not? He was telling people like me, he was telling leaders on Capitol Hill, we're going to get Trump to ultimately ultimately leave, there's going to be a peaceful transition of power. But at some point, he also started bringing people like Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, Mike Flynn into the Oval Office, who got these crazy ideas in front of the former president. And then he went a step further by going down to Georgia, and we know what happened there. This is a result of his own actions. And frankly, that's what it comes down to. I think for many people, it feels like justice is moving, but slowly, this is two years after the fact, and we'll let it play out. Sidney Powell, a co-defendant. Mike Flynn, who you mentioned, not mentioned in any of the criminal uh, indictments. Uh, Olivia Troy, let me ask you. Uh, Donald Trump might have a mugshot uh, today. Uh, we don't know. We think he will. Um, but either way, I mean, I think after one of the previous indictments, uh, they made their own. The Trump campaign, the MAGA team made their own indictment. Um, he's, he, has, he has said, give me a fourth indictment and I'll... I'll win the presidency. Yeah, and look, while they don't want the legal accountability of what this means, I think they're going to use this to continue the grift and the lies. I think they'll market it. They'll use it to spread disinformation, targeted misinformation as well. And they'll continue down that narrative and the dangerous narratives of saying this is targeted. This is all a conspiracy against Donald Trump. Uh, you know, we have to stand up. They're, com the whole, they're coming after you next, which is all lies, right? I mean, he's being account held accountable for crimes that he has committed and where witnesses 
that worked for him directly or know him and Republicans who supported this party for a very long time testified and are the part of the witnesses. So, I mean, that's just uh, the irony of all of this. But I do think that he will, he will be using that. You'll see fundraising emails go out. Um, I see them come out all the time. You'll see the text messages go out. And unfortunately, it's, it's sad because it's, it's harmful for our country. We can't get past this moment of the lies that continue to spread. And you're seeing it. His supporters aren't wavering on this. Yeah, I had to cut a vacation short to come back for this criminal indictment. Um, uh, not to complain, but you did not. You were on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Now you've had a chance to read it. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that um, this case in particular is really strong. I feel like, I mean, we have him on audio literally telling the um, Georgia Secretary of State to find him 11,000-something votes. 780. Yes, exactly. And so I think that this is going to be a a difficult case for him to try to spin his way out of. But as Olivia mentioned, you know, they try to say this is a weaponization of government. But to me, this just looks 100% self-inflicted. Donald Trump got himself into this mess all because he couldn't accept the fact that he lost the election to Joe Biden. Uh, Alyssa, um, the... There were very few Republicans on the stage uh, last night um, who uh, were standing up for what I think you would call the rule of law in terms of standing against the lies, the attempt to subvert the election. Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson being two exceptions uh, of the eight. If you think that um, they were all given sodium pentothal uh, before the debate, how many of them do you think would be saying or sounding similar to Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson? I think probably every single one of them, with the exception of this Vivek character who kind of came out of nowhere and I'm not sure has many principles to stand on. Look, elected Republicans in Washington and all around the country know the fact that Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden. They were quick to denounce him. Nikki Haley gave one of the best denunciations of him after January 6th at the RNC winter meeting. I do appreciate that she took some shots at the former president and the fact that he is the least popular politician in the country. But the reason Donald Trump should lose in 2024 is not because he's unpopular and is a loser for Republicans. It's because he is unfit for office. He tried to overthrow our elections and our Constitution. That is the case that needs to be made more roundly. And I think if our elected officials had been doing that for the last two years, the primary would be in a very different place. You three have always uh, been, uh, since January 6th, moral beacons when it comes to this issue. And thanks to all three of you, Alyssa, Sarah, Olivia, really appreciate it. Coming up, Donald Trump now in the air, heading down to Georgia having just taken off from Newark International Airport. The former president expected to surrender at the Fulton County Jail in just a matter of hours. Coming up next, what to make of Trump switching up his defense team in Georgia? Stay with us. And welcome back to CNN's special coverage. It was wheels up for Donald Trump at Newark International Airport just a few minutes ago. His plane, his private plane, is heading here, where you're looking right now, to Georgia. Uh, Specifically, he'll land at Atlanta Airport and head to the Fulton County Jail, where he will be placed under arrest. Moments ago, we learned that Trump's newly hired lawyer, Stephen Sado, is waiting for Donald Trump at the Atlanta International Airport and will ride with him to the Fulton County Jail, where he will surrender. My colleague, Caitlin Collins, is down outside the Fulton County uh, Jail right now. Caitlin? Yeah, Jake, a new attorney for Trump coming with him tonight. Here with me now is CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray. 
and Raya Greathouse, a former assistant district attorney for Fulton County. Perfect person to talk about this with. Uh, Sarah, let's talk about this new attorney that Trump has hired. You know, we knew that he'd been looking for someone for a few weeks. He wanted a different person on this team, despite the others that have been dealing with this investigation for, for two and a half years. Steve Sadow, what do we know about him and what he's been brought on to do? Well, he's an, another prominent criminal defense attorney, the guy that Trump had before, Drew Finling, also prominent criminal defense attorney. But it seems like for whatever reason, the Trump team wanted to make a switch. Again, they're not really giving a clear answer for why that is. I think one of the things we saw with Drew Finling is he was starting to get a lot of attention in the media. That's not necessarily something that Donald Trump has loved in the past. They've still been pretty complimentary, essentially, of sending Drew on his way as they've replaced him with Steve Sadow. But it's clear that they wanted to make a change, and this was something that Donald Trump felt more comfortable with. So, you know, we've already seen, you know, a little bit of paperwork come flying for him. This is the kind of job where you do have to hit the ground running, and, you know, we'll see how he how he goes with the district attorney. And he's pretty well known in, in Atlanta. I mean, he's represented T.I., Usher, Ray Lewis, I believe. Like, he, he is a very pretty prominent guy, sure. uh, attorney in he, circles here. He is. I mean, he's been doing this for years. He's got a, an amazing track record. But most importantly, He's a veteran in the Fulton County system. He understands working with DA Willis and her staff. Uh, it's something that, that he's done time and time again with several clients. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he's going to jump and hit the ground running on this case. Yeah, and Drew Findling was kind of known as this billion-dollar attorney. I mean, that's his ha that's his Instagram handle. That's truly how he's known. I was heard from some people that that was something that was not appreciated necessarily in Trump circles. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting because on the one hand, he has a lot of experience dealing with prominent celebrity clients, which you would think would be good taking on, you know, someone like the former president. But he did have a pretty high profile, especially as this case was charged and brought to indictment and it became clear Donald Trump was going to have to show up in jail. We, don't, we know that Trump doesn't necessarily love that. And talking to people about Steve Sadow, they did say, you know, look, if I got in trouble, Steve Sadow would be very high on the list of criminal defense attorneys that I would call, if not at the top of it. So he does, to your point, have a very good reputation. He yeah. does. And it's also very noteworthy to, to mention that this is a RICO trial. And that's what right. he has a, an expertise in white collar and RICO crime. So it's very interesting to see how, you know, he's going to possibly give, you know, Mr. Trump the upper hand. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, he has a good reputation. We'll see what that looks like. It's a heck of a first day <laughs> on the job. And Jennifer Little, the other attorney who is staying on, is, is a witness in the other investigations against Trump, the documents investigation. But since you know the system so well, you know, we just heard from the judge who has set a, a date hearing for September 18th. That's for Jeffrey Clark, the former Justice Department official. He is trying to make this argument that his case should be moved from state court to federal court because he worked for the Justice Department. I mean, what's your sense, just judging from where it is now, of the likelihood of that? Well, I think it's going to be very difficult. I, I understand that the, the removal statute that, uh, that allows the process of removing a case from state court to federal, sure, you, you have to basically uh, prove that you are working in your capacity, furthering the interests of, of the government, so to speak. And I think that that's going to be very difficult for him to prove. I think ultimately... Uh, this may just be a strategy that he's using for jury shopping. I think he's trying to say, all right, well, if I stay in Fulton County, we know that typically uh, Atlanta may have blue, may not necessarily be in their favor. Whereas you go to the Northern District, uh, the federal forum, you're going to have 
a much wider jury pool to choose from. Yeah, and Jeffrey Clark's actually here in Atlanta today. Yes, he is here in Atlanta. I believe he still has to turn himself in uh, here at jail. There are a couple of other defendants who haven't been been turned in in the process. I do think, I mean, one of the interesting things, seeing all of these folks try to move their case to federal court or what we saw from Ken Chesbrough today, which was moving for a speedy trial, is it's going to be really hard for Fonnie Willis to try to keep all of these defendants together and try them together, maybe impossible. Yeah, right. Great house, Sarah Murray. Thank you both for, for joining me out here in the Georgia heat. Jake, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Caitlin. It's very cool in here in the air-conditioned uh, studio. As Trump makes his way to Georgia today, the Fulton County prosecutor proposed an October 23rd trial date for Trump and his 18 co-defendants. Is that realistic? And how might that play in his 2024 campaign? We'll get into all that next. And we're back with CNN's special coverage of the Georgia indictment of former President Donald Trump. The former president's plane left New Jersey, wheels up a few minutes ago. It's now on its way to the Atlanta International Airport in Georgia. Let's bring in CNN political analyst and former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, as well as Republican strategist and former Trump campaign senior advisor, David Urban. Uh, David, let's talk about the Republican debate last night on Fox Trump. Uh, was not brought up until about an hour into the debate. Here's what Brett Baer uh, asked the candidates. Take a listen. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Most of them raised their hand. Trump wasn't even on the stage last night, yet you could still see he really uh, contains, uh, um, con- continues to have a, a grip on, on the candidates, most of them in the Republican Party. Um, but David, for the Republican voters who don't want a convicted felon uh, to be their nominee, um, w- what do you make of that answer? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, so as you, you might have seen there and has been written about kind of widely today, um, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy's hand shot up right away. There's a, you know, crowd, the crowd roars. And then everyone else kind of sheepishly put their hand up and, you know, and, and Governor DeSantis, you know, slowly cranked his hand up after looking around. Um, it, it, it's a tough it's a tough thing to answer because it's going to be a very divisive uh, point if Trump is actually convicted, because at, at this point we can all say, well, listen, he's he's accused. He's innocent until proven guilty. Right. There's all these presumptions out there. But if he's actually convicted of one of these cases, it's going to be an entirely different ballgame where people are going to have to really sit back and think about that. And it's going to give give a lot of Republicans who might not otherwise have paused and might be willing to vote for Trump and give him another second chance. They might actually, you know, look at somebody else at this point. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see when it comes. Alyssa, did you did you like anybody on the stage last night? Was there anybody there that you thought you could vote for if they became the nominee? Yeah, I thought Nikki Haley kind of took the took the night away and she had the great moment where she called uh, Vivek Ramaswamy out for kind of his lack of foreign policy experience, stood up for kind of traditional conservative values like standing with our allies abroad. I also thought Mike Pence had a, um, a good night. And, you know, this is a man who's done two vice presidential debates. He's done gubernatorial debates. So he's got that experience. Um, but nearly every candidate on that stage was forced to admit something very important on the airways of Fox News. The election that what Vice President Pence did 
president to certify the election was the right thing to do in his constitutional duty. So I think that stood out to people. But listen, the reality is Donald Trump's 40 points ahead. Um, and even though polling would suggest that most Republicans wouldn't support a convicted felon, Donald Trump po- uh, kind of blows most polling out of the water. So I'm not really sure we can expect any coming wave to take him out of the front runner status. David, um, it, it seemed as though Fox wanted to, to move on from talking about Trump and and what happened on January 6th. But as Alyssa noted, former Vice President Mike Pence um, not only embraced the conversation, uh, he really he really interrupted even to make to make uh, clear his position on what Trump told him to do, asked him to do. Uh, take a look. Did I speak on this issue? I was you kind of did an- you, you answered on this <laughs> issue. You, you did, you did say answer. something. Yeah, yeah. I thought we thought you were done, but you, uh, no, please. I wasn't done. He asked me to put him over the Constitution. And uh, I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I had no right to overturn the election. What did you make of that, David? Yeah, listen, I think Mike Pence had an incredibly strong performance last night. Um, I think, uh, you know, Chris Christie's uh, praising of Mike Pence's performance on January 6th was probably Chris Christie's most powerful moment when he stepped back and said, look, Mike Pence put himself in great peril politically, physically, you know, Every every way by standing up and doing the right thing. So I, I thought it was uh, it was it was a very powerful moment for the former vice president, and he and he over outperformed expectations. He looked uh, he looked really strong last night. There was a moment also, uh, Alyssa, where um, the the, cra- the the candidates had been asked, you know, did did Vice President Pence do the right thing? And there was a moment where it seemed as though Vice President Pence thought that Governor DeSantis was not giving an answer on the question. And Governor DeSantis, pushed by the vice president, said something like, I have no beef with Mike or what what Mike did. Uh, What did you make of that? Listen, Ron DeSantis did not distinguish himself as a leader last night, whether it was to Dave's point, you know, looking around to see who raised their hand or that moment. I mean, the, the moderators had to step in and say, just answer the question. I think that resonated with a lot of folks who were trying to see, is this somebody who could achieve front runner or even number two status? And he's just not there. I worked with Governor DeSantis in the House. He's got some skills, but this is not a guy who's going to be the savior of the GOP if you're looking for someone to take on Donald Trump. David, yeah, uh, J- yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, if you compare and contrast Chris Christie's answer on that and Governor DeSantis' answer on that, I think you'll see two very different answers, right? And one very definitive, one not so strong. I have no beef is not a warm embrace of the Constitution like uh, Chris Christie had. Right. I have no beef with the Constitution. Um, let's take a look at the moment where DeSantis was uh, pushed on whether or not he would support uh, a six-week uh, abortion ban on a national level. Would you sign a six-week ban federally? I'm going to stand on the side of life. Look, I understand Wisconsin is going to do it different than Texas. I understand Iowa and New Hampshire are going to do different. But I will support the cause of life as governor and as president. Alyssa, this is, I mean, I try to get him to answer the same question. He doesn't, he doesn't answer that question. It's a reasonable question. He signed a six-week abortion ban into law in Florida. Uh, Alyssa, why not just say yes? He's got to embrace it at this point. But what he did note is he said he pointed to his 2022 midterm victory and how well he did in Florida. But I would note that was before he signed the six-week abortion ban. I think it would look very different in Miami-Dade. The only thing he can do is embrace it at this point. David, as a, uh, I guess, former Pennsylvanian, I don't know what you consider yourself <laughs> anymore, but I know you have a house. Always in, a, I'm always a yinzer, always, Jake. Always always, okay. As, as a Pennsylvanian, are you worried about somebody who supports a six-week abortion ban, whether or not they say they want to do it nationally, being able to win Pennsylvania? Yeah, absolutely, Jake. You, you, you know very well, and we saw in the midterms, 
um, the Dobbs decision was was dispositive, right? It was it was probably the single largest issue that would push voters away from the Republican Party, and, and the fear of Republicans being too conservative on the issue will be divisive again going into 24. I think uh, you know a 15 week ban is where 70 percent of Americans are, and I think that's where the party should kind of camp out at. Your former boss, Arlen Specter, tried to tried to warn them. David Urban, Alyssa Farah Griffin, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Donald Trump's about 25 minutes into his flight from New Jersey to Georgia, where he will surrender this evening at the Fulton County Jail. What to expect once he arrives on this historic day? That's ahead. And we're back with the breaking news. Donald Trump heading down to Georgia on a flight right now and right now on his way to Fulton County specifically to surrender in his fourth criminal prosecution. I want to bring in my colleague, uh, John King. John? Jake, good to see you. Sitting here in New York with some of our finest legal and political analysts, uh, let's continue this conversation that Jake has been going through for the last hour. Karen Friedman-Arknifolo, let me start with you, former prosecutor. Uh, Donald Trump's going to go to a county jail in Atlanta, Georgia today, and he's going to be processed. We'll wait to see if, as we've seen in the case of Rudy Giuliani, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, we get a mugshot of the former president of the United States. The images of those defendants here and what we expect from Trump, at least the process, is everybody's treated equally under the law. But you see in how he is handled and how he handles these cases, not exactly equal treatment. Why? He is allowed to walk this fine line of doing tweets and calling out threats and and things that any other defendant, if he were to do that, it's clearly in violation of his release conditions here in Georgia in his, uh, he he consented to a $200,000 bond, he threw his attorney, and he consented to certain limitations uh, that he would not do, like threats to the community, threats to specific people, witnesses, etc. But he knows how how to kind of walk that fine line. And he's almost like he's daring or taunting judges and prosecutors to say something or do something so he could say, see, they're violating my First Amendment rights. No other defendant would be treated like that. They would not be allowed to do the things that he is doing and has been doing in each of his four arrests. Temadayo, Ganja Williams, you worked on the January 6th committee. This case in Georgia tracks a lot of the ground you tried to cover, did cover, in the committee investigation. Uh, You talk about Trump's obsession with Georgia. This is about trying to reverse the results of a state where he lost. He tried to get the Secretary of State. He tried to get other people in politics to go back, recount the votes. What was it? What did you learn in that investigation about Georgia that you think is appropriate, fits the bill as we watch what happens today? So former President Trump tried to overturn the results, you know, in a lot of swing states. But he did have a particular, as, as I've said, obsession with Georgia. He talked about the dead voters. He couldn't stop talking about claiming there were 5,000 dead voters when there were, uh, I think, investigators found four. Uh, he was obsessed with the suitcase full of ballots in Fulton County. And he took a particular focus on two women, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, two black women in Fulton County who were poll workers, something that's honorable or truly a noble task. And they were both witnesses before the select committee. And I think seeing him today having to answer for what he did in Fulton County, I think their victim, how they were victimized, is an especially good example of the impact of what he did. He focused on them. He claimed that they were part of this ballot scheme when the entire time he was the one who was running the scheme. And I think what's especially, I think, poetic as someone who actually grew up in Fulton County is to see now a black DA, Fawnie Willis, now holding former President Trump accountable for what he did not only to 
the residents of Georgia, but specifically to those two black women in Fulton County. So I think it's a really important day for accountability. You talk about accountability in the justice system. Scott Jennings, we watched the other candidates, Republican candidates, debate last night. Um, in the upside-down world that is politics with Trump in the conversation, uh, this is the fourth time he will be processed for criminal charges. The previous three, his standing has stayed the same or actually improved. Uh, when you watch this unfold today, as a political strategist who would like the Republicans to retake the White House, what goes through your mind? Well, it, it's amazing. Donald Trump treats being arrested the way the Super Mario Brothers treat eating mushrooms. I mean, he just gets <laughs> bigger and taller every time it happens, which is sort of stunning uh, when you think about it. But what might seem like a short-term advantage to him, uh, even if he gets a mugshot and they raise money off of it or, or what have you, the long-term implications of this, for me, are obvious. If he is convicted of any of these felonies, to me it is a metaphysical certainty <laughs> that he cannot and will not be elected president of the United States. He's highly unlikely to be elected anyway. This would seal it, in my opinion. And when you look at the timelines and you look at all these cases and how they're unfolding, any of these things result in a conviction between the time he becomes the de facto nominee and the time the convention meets. It's going to be a crisis for this, the Republican this, of Party. Course, Are you convinced of that, David Axelrod? Are you convinced that, that he can't win because of this? Well, I think that it's highly unlikely that he can win. I think what is untested, and there's some empirical evidence that it would have an impact, is if he is convicted. And that's why I think he, I mean, there may be good legal reason for his lawyers to want to delay, uh, but I also think there's good political reason for him to want to delay these cases, and he'll do anything he, he can to do this. Look, I've always believed that part of the motivation, maybe the majority of the motivation for him running was to create this kind of shield around him uh, because he saw some of these cases coming down the track. And, you know, Karen mentions the, uh, uh, his outspokenness. And, you know, he had a very, very sharp tweet about or, or post about Fonnie Willis today. Um, I did this podcast with Sally Yates this week. And she said, listen, we have never had a case like this where a candidate for president of the United States was under indictment and judges are going to give him more runway than they would normally give. Uh, it's also harder to enforce. They're not going to put Donald Trump in jail. So, you know, he's going to take full advantage of this. I don't know if you've noticed this, John, but rules are not his main concern. So he's going to do whatever he thinks. And, and he is desperate to get these trials kicked as far into the future as possible. With four of them? It's speculation, but who would go first and when? Do you think this trial would actually start this year? Well, uh, one of the co-defendants, Kenneth Cheeseborough, who was one of the main architects of this fake elector scheme, he has demanded a speedy trial, which is uh, something that all states have. But in Georgia, it's much faster. And so he that would require a November. Fonnie Willis has to start in November. And I think... The way I've been told, it's sort of like a uh, shot across the... It's like it's like a declaration of war saying, I want my speedy trial right now. But clearly, Fonnie Willis was ready for that. I think that's why she took the amount of time that she took between the grand jury investigation and her indictment. And she said, I'll see your, I'll see your November trial request and I'll raise you to October 23rd. So she's ready to go October 23rd. We'll watch as all this plays out. Thank you, everyone. We'll continue the conversation. And our coverage continues right now in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.